0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered. I'm Nick Brunker, a Group Director of Experience Strategy at Y&R, and your host for the show. Thanks for tuning us in. In the ever-evolving world of retail commerce, delivering distinct and meaningful experiences can be quite the challenge as leaders wrestle with the need to enable omnichannel at scale, focus on hyper-personalization, and break through the noise of a crowded field. So how can leaders innovate? Our guest today has his finger directly on the pulse of that and will help us make sense of it all. I'm really excited to be joined today by Charlie Wade, Executive Director of Growth and Innovation at VMLY and R Commerce. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Likewise. Excited to have you here. Before we dive into all of the, the stuff we're going to get into today, which is a lot, talk a little bit about your background at, at VML r Commerce and just in advertising in general.
1: Yeah, thanks very much again. So I've been with VML YNR for about five years, having started at VML, then VML YNR, and then VML (laughs) YNR Commerce. And today I'm lucky enough to have a really interesting role. I look at growth and innovation across our agency. I also have a team that I run called CoLab, which is all about finding growth and innovation for our commerce clients. Before that, I was actually at a retailer. So I worked at a company called ASOS, which a few people will probably know already. It's one of the most successful director consumer stories it was very fascinating being on the other side of the table and learning firsthand and in house exactly you know what happens what matters seeing agencies across the table from you as well so it's really really interesting and it kind of probably just cemented a love and interest of retail i already had which had come from my early days in agency world as well so so a little bit of uh, an interesting a career there, and um, one that I get to, to use every day, which is really exciting.
0: No question. And I mean, it's obviously a very uh, frenetic time. And I use that, that term in the, the nicest possible way. There's so much going on in the retail space. And just in, in general, as customer uh, behaviors and things have been changing, obviously, we don't have to go into all the, the, the impacts of COVID. But I mean, just as a retailer and somebody who has, you know, been working in that space for such a long time, the word transformation gets thrown around a lot these days As as brands, not only those that are going direct to consumer, but the retail space as well. Uh, there's a lot going on and a lot of investment being made in trying to, you know, future proof um, the brands and then obviously the retailers as well. What does it mean in the mind? Let's just specifically talk about retailers and and what they need to do to stay top of mind in a world where everybody's trying to transform.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, transformation is one of those words that gets used across every industry. And in many ways, I think that retail is grappling with it, embracing it, using it, and all those things that a lot of other areas are too. And you know, I, funnily enough, I was lucky enough to be at the World Retail Congress the other week, and transformation was one of the key themes that kept coming up. What was quite interesting hearing from retailers firsthand. This is generally CEOs of retailers is there's kind of two different areas that they were looking at when it comes to transformation. So some were quite focused on that, what I would call back office. So this supply chain So how can they help understand about getting things into market quicker or quite often trying to move some of their supply chain away from turbulent countries like China and so on, maybe Mm -hmm. trying to produce stuff locally. Whereas other brands were much more focused on this idea of transformation, you know the front end, so the consumer or the customer experience and what that meant. So it's really fascinating to see how there was a sort of divergence of opinion on that. And you know, one thing that did come up, that really does seem to straddle both areas, though, is that of AI and AI's ability to help with transformation. So, again, if you're looking at you know, some of the back office stuff, it's about trying to understand stock profile. It's about trying to understand sort of seasonality, purchase behaviors, and so on. Whereas at the front end, you know, what we're looking at, a lot of companies were looking at how AI could be deployed to update product pages seamlessly mm-hmm. or personalize them even better so that I might see a different... Load of products or different product description compared to unique. Alternatively, they're thinking about you know how they serve better items to consumers based on what their preference is. So it's a really interesting space at the moment for transformation.
0: And I think what's really curious and fun about the transformation space, uh, just the broad term, of course, in in retail, um, is that they're, they're a wealth of data and. I think we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about personalization and customer-focused behaviors that are happening, but you you go from brand to brand, and maybe we'll just lift out of the retail space for just a minute, and you just think about um, these data lakes that exist and there's no shortage of data in a lot of cases and retailers are certainly no exception to that. But it seems like the ones that are really winning, whether it's back office, whether it's front office, they're they're finding ways to make sense of what is just a mass of data because it's not just about having the data, it's being able to leverage it intelligently and in at scale uh, to deliver experiences, you know, both as a retailer or as a brand who's trying to get people on their site. You know, when you've talked with leaders about, how they've made sense of what can be very large data lakes, maybe data oceans is too broad of a term, but you get the idea, there's just lots of it. How have they adapted to uh, the need to be able to really go in and cherry pick the right data and then apply that data to create new experiences?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, funny enough, I always think that when it comes to data, you know, the big problem is that people just assume that data is going to tell you the story rather than trying to understand what story you want data to kind of prove. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the issues, you know, and when you talk about transformation, funny enough, you know, a lot of things that retailers are trying to transform into is to, to retain or remain relevant within you know the minds of their consumer. You know, listen, the most important data point is if you're not relevant anymore, people don't buy from you. And that's really the one you've got to walk away with. And it's interesting that there's a, an author, a guy called Steve Dennis, who talks about this idea of the kind of collapse of the middle. So when it comes to boring, you know, sorry, when it comes to retail, you've kind of got three areas. You've got retail that's hyper specialist. Maybe it's like kind of luxury. It's uh, something like a Nike. It's very, very clear about what its proposition is. Mm-hmm. Then you might have retailers on the other end that are maybe very singular focused on things like low-value, sort of high-frequency. What he talks about is this kind of problem in the middle where you get a bunch of retailers who sort of lose sight of what their consumer wants and therefore what they stand for. And unfortunately, we see examples of this all the time. You look at Bed Bath & Beyond, which is a great example of a business where it felt like it stopped listening to what its consumer wanted. It stopped asking its consumer for the kind of prompts to get the data back that would allow it to move its business in the right place. And as a result, it just expands its width. It becomes kind of all things to everyone. And as a result, really nothing to anyone. So I think that when it comes to data, you need to be quite clear about what it is you're trying to prove out. What is it you're trying to understand? What is it you're trying to learn? And then of course, to the point earlier on, you can start using data to then inform the consumer journey. And that could be in-store or online. And it's usually around the kind of products you're serving them, the kind of experience you're serving them. And often things like the kind of price point you're serving them.
0: You were mentioning you were out at uh, World Retail Congress out in Barcelona. Talk about any interesting retail experiences you heard about that are either happening right now or or on the surface of happening here in the next, next little bit.
1: Yeah, I think there's quite a few. I mean, funny enough, one of the sections came up and I'm someone who kind of keeps quite a lot of uh, time. I spend quite a lot of time looking at uh, great resale experiences. So I think you're seeing some interesting things. So you see this kind of like someone like a Glossier, you know, who continues to look at retail as a media outlet. So their stores are as much for you to go in and take photographs and share it online and build up attention and buzz. And you've kind of got the the Sephora's of the world. I think Adam Troyak last time was talking about Sephora <laughs> and the yep. the importance of that of uh, that, that kind of retailer, very much thinking about a loyalty play and you know, how they can drive you into the store and and kind of reward you for doing that. You know, other ones I think are really fascinating. People like Uniqlo and Zara who are trying to do quick checkouts, um, as well as you know the likes of Nike. I wrote something a few few years ago, funny enough, when they opened their Fifth Avenue store, because I said it was the kind of birth of customizable retail. What I mean by that is you can go in and you can use your phone to shop the entire selection and leave without talking to someone. Or you can call product up. You can have people come and help you out. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on when you want to, you can converse with the customer service. It's a really interesting experience. Um, things I think probably are maybe a little bit too soon and something few people talked about. was this idea of you look at a Whole Foods or a Panera Bread and they're looking at things like pay by palm. And I I struggle with that. I don't think it's something that will never happen. But right now, I think if you're looking at some sort of enhancement to the experience, you've really got to make it better than the experience of using your mobile phone. And there's not a huge gap between using your palm and just holding your phone up. So why would someone want to give and get into the kind of subject of biometrics where they could just hold their phone next to a, mm-hmm. a cashier and so i think things like that i struggle with as a as an area to go although i do think that the idea of um having quick checkouts and having less cashiers is probably quite likely to continue to happen
0: it reminds me of a conversation i had with Khalida mcdade you know, several episodes ago about how sometimes the society or scale is just not ready for the technology uh, that exists. And she made a comment about how grocery delivery back in the 90s, and I can't recall the brand off the top of my head what she was she was um, using as the proxy but or the example, but it, it wasn't like that the, the idea of having groceries delivered to your, your home was a new concept when the Kroger's and the Amazons and the Target started to introduce it. It was, at the time, it wasn't ready or it wasn't mature enough or it wasn't, to your point, it didn't, actually make somebody's life better at the time because of either how much or little it scaled or how mature the technology was so i think it's really interesting another thing we hear a lot about and we've talked a lot about is the super broad term of ai and you you talked about it earlier and how leaders across lots of industries are are wary about, okay, when and how to use it? Um, who who am I going to potentially displace by using it? Is it is it more cost beneficial to me to do that? Uh, as you've been hearing kind of the the conversations around the water coolers, both of these types of conferences in your day to day, how are leaders um, reacting to and accepting this idea of, more AI at scale within their businesses? Because it is still a relatively immature situation in in a lot of cases, right?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that a lot of leaders are a bit worried about implementing too much AI too quickly because I think a lot of people are quite worried about what it means to them. I think Mm. also, candidly, there is a bit of a concern about hype cycle now i don't think ai necessarily belongs in that but a lot of what the people were saying in barcelona is that you know what last year it was the metaverse and this year it feels like it's ai so i think people get a bit worried about getting into hype cycles again a repeat point i don't think ai is one of those but i think that. The thing that you hear a lot is ai won't replace you it'll replace the person who doesn't sorry ai won't replace you the person who uses ai will replace you if that makes sense <laughs> yeah. and i think there's an element of truth to that i think there is something in that um and i i go back to the point beforehand that ai in the right places it can make a lot of a lot of sense so i think when it is about serving the right products at the right time hyper personalizing the experience i mean as a great example you look at the french retailer Carrefour who've just started doing AI customer service videos. Mm-hmm. Now think about a time where you can, you Nick could write and say XYZ brand, I'm, I'm very disappointed I didn't get this. Can you help me out? And you get a generated response. And it's a video saying, Nick, I'm really sorry. Here's what we're gonna do about it. Here's where you can go. And here's a discount for your troubles or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it, it takes me back to, I remember when Warby Parker were doing uh, customer service videos on YouTube, it kind of blew everyone's minds. You can now do that at scale. Mm-hmm. So things like that, I think are going to be really interesting. But of course, there probably is going to be, you know, the other side of the coin, which is that some jobs will probably be under threat.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think there's also this this feeling of, all right, as the genie comes out of the bottle, to borrow that term, how how do you look at the ethics about it. How, how do you make it something that's that's safe and um, sustainable and ethical, which actually goes to the next point we were going to talk about, which is you know, purpose-driven brands. And I came across a really interesting survey recently. I think it was from late last year, but uh, happened to come across my desk. And it was talking about there's this new generation of purpose-led brands that are growing faster. They're driving more revenue. Talk about that trend and what you've heard about how You know, the idea of purpose and purpose-driven, you know, just DNA is impacting the retail space in terms of experience.
1: I think purpose is a fascinating area for a number of reasons. It's something that came up at Shop Talk, which was, I think, just the week after World Retail Congress. It's also something that uh, we've produced a couple of reports on at VML1, our commerce. It's really, really interesting because you see different generations really – Placing a huge importance on it, and we hear a lot of the time that Gen Z places a, a massive importance on on uh, this idea of sort of purpose and sustainability, particularly within that. And I think that's a it's a really kind of interesting thing in itself. So what you see really with retailers um, is there are some who very much embody this. You know, the obvious example is the kind of Patagonias of this world, who are really I'd say paving the way in many ways. You know, they're really pushing it forward. Equally, there, there are companies like the Body Shop that do an awful mm-hmm. lot around sustainability. They do an awful lot around um, when it comes to kind of recruitment of diverse talent and so on around their purpose is quite interesting. But at the same time, there are brands obviously who who sort of struggle with it. And I think that obviously you you've kind of got to be all in, you've got to show that there's this level of purpose, but certainly sustainability across the organization, if you're going to talk about it at all. One thing that I did think was really fascinating uh, when I was there is there was a great session um, with, uh, as you found out, it was for in the Middle East. It was also a spa, but Albertsons, so someone called Suzanne uh, Long from Albertsons, and she was talking very much about the impact that sustainability in the back office can have on a company's bottom line. So, if you're looking at all the different stores you've got hundreds in your in your uh, estate, if you're looking at changing the lighting to make it more cost effective, if you're looking at putting in fridges that have different energy consumption, you start remodelling your store, and you can save enormous amounts of money. The thing they were talking about is this idea of reducing waste. You know, a lot of retailers. Discard a lot of work, uh, a lot of produce, I beg your pardon. And so back to the AI point, you can use tools, you can use data to bring in and kind of bring those two things together. So I think sustainability and purpose is a a big area.
0: There's also a layer of of authenticity, too, and I think the term is greenwashing. um, But when you, you talk about people... And specifically the, the customers that are obviously very interested in, you know, monetizing and patronizing in a good way, the, the brands that are, are living this type of way. There's also a, a sense of you got to actually, to your point, be all in and customers can sniff out when the brands aren't being authentic in their their purpose or when they say, hey, we are a purpose led or purpose driven brand. You really got to actually be it. You have to be authentic in, in the in the ways that you, know, you stand up in this space, because. Uh, from what you're seeing, it's something that customers have a really keen sense on uh, when they're they're being BSed to use that term.
1: Yeah, not a term I would ever use, Nick, of course. But um, <laughs> I mean, <I'm> just <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, the, you know, I think the thing about purpose uh, and sustainability, let's look at that within it. But it could be anything is that, you know, if you if you going to kind of throw it out for an anniversary holiday or if you're going to sort of throw it out, you know, one percent of our of our line is is recycled or whatever well then you need to okay. look at people start saying what about the other 99 as well mm-hmm. i mean because the alternative which is interesting is you know you do what something like a lot of the fast fashion retailers and, and they just don't talk about it look at Shein, which is you know this chinese behemoth and it doesn't really talk about it and it's one of gen z's favorite brands so it's it's a funny it's a funny thing in many ways
0: as we think about the retailers and you talked about the the death of the middle, uh, the idea of the Bed Bath and Beyond example. You juxtapose that with the you know news of the day, and you mentioned Albertsons. The whole Albertsons Kroger merger is in the news a lot these days. Um, you know, there's an argument about how Amazon is scaling into, into grocery and other spaces. It feels like the, the 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 middle, like you said, is kind of like collapsing upon itself, and for a lot of reasons that you just talked about, but. How do you see the next, let's just call it, you know, five, seven years in terms of how retailers are kind of getting reshaped? Because it does feel like, you know, I'm just envisioning in my mind, this is probably a bad example, like the lava lamp bubbles that are floating around and they start to glob onto each other and they become these big new things with obviously lots of new services. You think of Target as an example, kind of becoming uh, a brand that gets you know, more and more into grocery by the day, but also that that's not what they, you know, started as necessarily. How do you see that trend continuing or perhaps not continuing over the next handful of years?
1: Well, it's a good question. It's a massive question too. Um, so I'll try and pick on some of the bits of it rather than tackle the whole thing or we'll probably be here for, for longer than half an hour. But, you know, <laughs> if you look into that kind of grocery space, I mean, what's really interesting there is you're seeing kind of rise of a totally new kind of totally new business stream, which is that of retail media. You know, in many ways, the Albertsons and Kroger thing is about coming together to produce an enormous or certainly much bigger retail media proposition. So, you know, mergers like that are not sort of unlikely, though, of course, they're relatively finite because they can't Mm -hmm. keep happening. But I think retail media will continue to be a really important thing. You know, there's a lot of talk about how, particularly in the US, about how e-commerce adoption has gone back to pre-pandemic growth levels. So it was that huge hmm. spike and now that's kind of plateaued back out again. But still, I think e-commerce will continue to be, uh, you know, something that obviously people do, people will continue to buy, uh, whether or not it'll be just in the same sort of categories they're in or whether or not they'll kind of diverse out into different categories we'll have to see. I think there's just a real behavior, particularly in the United States, of kind of getting in your car and going to have your weekly shop and so on. So I think that uh, e-com will continue, but probably the same sort of trajectory it's at. Aside from that, I think we're going to see back to the point about some of the uh, advancements we'll see. I think we will continue to see a slightly different store experience. I think that people will be encouraged to use their own wayfinding to use their their own phones use their app be it mm-hmm. to find products to have products cross sold to them to go through the checkout quicker whatever it might be so i think things like that will happen finally one of the points that someone made actually was you know it's interesting if you start changing the store experience then you have to start changing the store associates exactly. so that they understand how the app works they understand what the user wants they become a bit more like a kind of troubleshooting person necessarily rather than a, uh, you know, someone who's necessarily standing by the, by the cashier. So I think, I think those some of those changes will happen.
0: And I'm listening to a, an audio book called unreasonable hospitality. And it's um, <laughs> the idea of being able to really anticipate needs and go after them. And, and as a customer service person in any industry, it's actually, you know, based around um, a chef and, you know, a world renowned chef and his restaurant, but the idea still plays across multiple industries that, it becomes to your point on the employees being able to have the tools necessary to use their physical space and obviously their their human emotions to be able to serve customers and serve guests depending on where you are Um, and i think that ties back to the idea of of data helping brands and retailers hyper curate experiences but to your point like it's only as good as the people delivering the on-the-ground experiences. So if there is still this world where we're omnichannel, where customers are kind of floating in and out of digital and physical experiences all across the same journey, then it is going to come down to how the data gets into the hands of these employees and how they train. Is that something that you see you know, really changing the way that we collectively, and I use the the, the we broadly, Are training in different businesses and in different places because, you know, you you think of the old days and I say that really (laughs) loosely, but when, you know, you were working in a, you know, a big box retailer or whatever, you could kind of join the team and and be a, you know, a sales associate. I I worked at a place way back in the day called Circuit City, dating myself a little bit. And it was, (laughs) it was very much a, a service, you know, driven environment and you would talk to them and try to, you know, engage with them, emotionally connect with them and ultimately sell them the product. And there was training that went along with that. How do you see the, uh, the way that these retailer brands or even just brands in general have to completely retrain the types of things that these associates know and do day to day?
1: Well, I think it's, again, another good question, a big question, though. I think it will depend on the kind of store experience that a retailer wants to put together. But I think that what you will see is a continuation of this kind of slightly different journeys. So I think some people will want to just come in and pick stuff up. Mm -hmm. So either they've bought online and it's literally buy online and pick up or they want to come in and just rush and get five things and check out as quickly as they can. Whereas there can be some people who want to browse and spend a bit more time, dwell a bit more. And I think setting up the environment to suit those Different behaviors will probably be quite important. And then if you start thinking about what that means when you start staffing your space quite differently, depending mm-hmm. on what people want. And I also think that that will probably end up changing, obviously, the layout of the store. It will end up changing kind of visual merchandising. Sure. You know, what do you want to put in front of someone if they're in that kind of more acquisitive get in, get out moment versus if they're, um, if they're staying for longer, the other thing that I think is really interesting is completely sort of left field, but something that we will be quite fascinating for a lot of brands will be the, the rise of electric vehicles. So you know, typically you take your t- take your car to the to the station. It takes you whatever it is fifteen minutes to pump a bunch of gas in it, pay for it, and go. Possibly less actually. Yeah. Well, you know, with an EV, you might be there for half an hour to an hour. What does that mean? for a retailer, what does it mean for a brand? How can they get you to try something, trial something? And you know maybe if you try something and you get a kind of hypercharge and I'm sort of making stuff up, but I think that will be an interesting area. The point being that brands, like, as they always have had to, they will have to keep kind of changing depending on what their consumer wants. Again, going back to that theme of data, if they're asking their customer the right questions, they'll get the right data and they'll make the right choices.
0: And this is probably a broader question that we'll need to spend another podcast talking about, but I, <laughs> I, I'm loving the idea of of finding ways and just you know kind of bringing it back to our space, how different practitioners of customer experience have to kind of come together to be able to deliver these experiences at scale. Like you think about our, and for those that are and our brethren will understand this and know what I'm talking about, but I'll try to describe it for those that aren't, aren't in the fold, so to speak. But uh, on our site, vmlyr.com, you can check it out. It's this infinity loop of brand experience, customer experience, and commerce, all kind of working in unison to build great, meaningful, connected experiences for customers across all industries. And what it feels like, too, and we're in this really interesting time where the way that commerce and the expertise around retail commerce specifically is married with CX in the truest sense of the word, powered by good promises that are led by awesome brand campaigns. How do people in, in your space come together and kind of drive forward because there are obviously huge differences when you're talking about direct to consumer or B2C or B2B versus the B2B to C when you're looking at more, you know, the big box retailer space. For those that are listening that are in kind of this marketing marketing space and leaders who are trying to shape their organizations around this idea, how do you kind of interact with all those different players to kind of make sure everybody is swimming in the same direction?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, this is a, a brilliant question again, and absolutely, of course, I'd love to come back and talk about it. It's hey, interesting because I was listening to um, our friend Eric Looney, who's you know, he talks about how the experience is the brand. Now, I would take that even further, and I'd say that you know, one of the things we believe in so centrally in is this idea of uh, creative commerce. And the point is that quite often brands spend a lot of time upfront getting you to kind of love the brand, recognise it, see it's there. They might try quite hard to get you into store or to their .com, and they kind of just assume you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, they just kind of think, well, you know, they'll probably buy, and if not, well, maybe they'll come back another time because they love our adverts so much. You know, what we would say is that in actual fact, you know, those kind of commerce moments are really the time to drive home something exciting and to take a moment to engage and make sure you convert. So. I look at the opportunity now, and I think it's incredibly exciting. So you've got social commerce in all its different guises. You've got gaming as an example. You've got live streaming. You've got D 2 C. You know, if you want to set up your own D 2 C brand, but you're part of Walmart. You know, I, I mean, obviously, if a retailer wants to set one up. Yeah, yeah. You know, you then talk about things like ghost kitchens. I mean, that is a really interesting area as well. So there's so many different channels and so many different opportunities that. We really should, in fact, any brand should be looking at that kind of moment of commerce as the as an incredibly important and and pivotal moment in the journey to, to drive home something that's really exciting and will make sure that not only someone buys but they gain loyalty and they gain excitement about it. I mean, I don't want to don't want to plug our work too too much, but you know, if you look at a lot of stuff we do, you know, around things like coupons and sweeps mm-hmm. and so on, but it's all about building that. So it, it's much more than just oh, if I buy something, I might get something out of it. So let's build an experience out of that. Let's make something far more compelling. So even if the person doesn't win the prize or doesn't necessarily redeem, they'll probably be more likely to have an affinity next time.
0: We're going to have to, to find some more time because that's there's so much there to unpack. And I'm excited to have you back and we'll we'll get into that topic down the line. Uh, but as we run out of time for this episode, um, I wanted to roll things out with um, uh, a fun fact about Charlie Wade. And I know that when we were prepping for this show, we were thinking about all the, the different possibilities of, of. All right. What are the fun facts about about Mr. Wade? And. <laughs> One of the things that came up was you're an, you know, an advertising uh, guru. You're awesome in growth and innovation. You're obviously plugged into the pulse of uh, direct-to-consumer and omnichannel at scale, all these great things. But you are also an actor of sorts. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about
1: that. Well, I, I think that's very generous. That's very generous. But you're <laughs> – so – what happened a few years ago, uh, I was very lucky. Uh, I spent a couple of months in China, I was traveling around. And one night I was in a bar, we shouldn't be saying this on a professional podcast, but I was in a bar um, and someone came up to me and said, I'm a casting agent. What will you be doing in a week's time? And to be honest with you, I thought they were joking around, thought they were pulling my leg. And uh, I said, you know, I'll be in, I think I was going to be in Xi'an actually. And so I said, oh, look, I'm going to be away. And they said, seriously, we're, I'm doing a uh, an advert next week and we really want you to be in it. And so sure enough, I called up the next day and they weren't joking, they were being serious. And and I was just a student at the time and didn't have much money. They're offering quite a lot of money.
0: And so
1: I said to the person I'm traveling with, should I come back? And I did, anyway, the upshot is it was meant to be sort of pastiche of the Titanic. And so I was dressed up as a sailor. You remember the, you know, those kind of like old-fashioned navy outfits with like tunics and so on,
0: yeah. which was
1: kind of bad enough because it was boiling hot day. It was all acrylic and so on. But that was in itself was bad enough. But they gave me this preposterous moustache. Anyway, my mum has got the video <laughs> and she always she always plays it whenever her mates come over so they can have a good laugh at me. But um, it, was, it was probably where my passion for advertising started, being in, a, being in an advert.
0: So that now has unlocked an entire new conversation that we have to have, but also <laughs> secondarily, that video needs to make its way to us so that we can post it and put it as part of our <laughs> podcast. Because I know that will drive listenership right here, boy. I'm telling you, listen, <laughs> I, I, I'd love to, but I'm not in the business of doing career suicide. I tell you that for free. But uh, no, like, it was it was very
1: fun, and actually, it was quite interesting. And not we work in advertising, you know, all of us. But I don't know, not many of us have been on the other side of the camera. So it's quite interesting to be there, but um, yeah, it was good, it
0: was good fun. And hopefully you're getting royalties still to this day from, from your time. In front of the camera but we appreciate your your expertise nonetheless behind the microphone today and uh, again uh, it all. means a lot you spend a bunch of time with us today talking about this super fascinating stuff as always and uh, like we said lots of other topics that we just kind of scratch the surface on that we'll have to do next time thanks again charlie
1: thank you so much indeed nick it's been great to be here thank you
0: and thanks to you all for listening to human centered as well to learn more about our cx practice and our approach to the work check us out online at vmlyr.com cx We'd also love to hear your feedback on the show. Give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you catch your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and so many more. Have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line, you can connect with me on Twitter at Nick Brunker or shoot us an email. The address is humancentered at VMLYR.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.